Hi, and welcome to Killer Hangover. This is episode three. Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> my name is Beth. And my name is Petita. We're joined tonight by my lovely cold, thanks to my toddler. Uh, and we are talking about some paranormal and true crime stories from North Carolina. And we're, I don't know why I just pointed at you. <laughs> I don't know either. You're introducing it. I'm just drinking it. <laughs> because we did North Carolina, and I'm doing the paranormal story this week, I got to choose a drink from North Carolina. And since I lived there for a while, I actually chose my very favorite beer from there. This is Hop Drop and Roll from Noda Brewing Company. Oh, that's a really fun green can. I know. I love this beer. Um, Noda makes some amazing, amazing beer. Another one of my favorites from them is Jam Sessions. Um, but this is my favorite. My girlfriend sent it to me. I'm so thankful that she got her hands on it for me. It's an American IPA. It's pretty hoppy. Hence the name, Hop, Drop, and Roll. Um, so let's pop it open and talk about some fun stories, Mom. All right. Actually, I need you to open it for me because I have fake nails on. <laughs> Can you hear that pop? Okay. There you go. All right, let me know what you think about it. Oh. Oh, numb. That's really good. Numb? It is kind of It is kind of hoppy. Numb? It is kind of hoppy. I really like this IPA. Okay. Anyway, I think you have a, a true crime story for me. Go for it. I do. And I am so excited about... Well, it's not exciting, but yeah. I'm excited about because you have not heard about it. No, I have not. So this is the Jeffrey McDonald crime. He was a Princeton graduate, a Green Beret captain, a medical doctor, husband, and father. This was really big in my time, so that's why I was excited to tell you about it, because you hadn't heard about it. So early in the morning on February 17th on a dark and stormy night that comes into play. So the uh, MPs and CID, and that's Criminal Investigation Division, on Fort Bragg, North Carolina, was called to the McDonald home. Jeffrey McDonald um, called in and said that some people have been stabbed. The MPs got to the house thinking that this was a domestic disturbance of some sort. They tried the front door. It was locked. They went to the back door. It was wide open, even though it was a dark and stormy night. Inside, they found a crime scene that I'm sure they have not easily forgotten, if they have ever even forgotten it. So, this is the scene. McDonald's pregnant wife, Colette, and she was pregnant with their um, third child, who was a boy, mm. was found beaten. Jeez. Both arms were broken with defensive wounds. She had been stabbed 21 times with an ice pick and 16 times with a knife. Mm. The word pig was written on the headboard in her blood. Disgusting. McDonald was lying next to her. He had been hit on the head and had a concussion. He suffered some superficial stab wounds and had a stab wound that went through his ribs and collapsed his lung. 
he was taken immediately to the hospital. Hmm. But the scene gets worse. Oh no, please don't tell me they're kids. Yep. And this is the stuff that... Five-year-old Kimberly was found on her bed. She had been clubbed to death, stabbed with an ice pick eight times, and a knife ten times. An ice pick? Yeah. Ugh. And two-year-old Kristen was found in her bedroom on a bed, and that scene was even more gruesome, if you can imagine. She had been stabbed with an ice pick 15 times and 33 times with a knife. Oh my gosh. She was just two years old. So I'm already sitting here thinking that this is like a crime of passion with all this... Uh, just overkill. Yeah, Big totally. time overkill. No pun intended. <laughs> so, according to McDonald, he was asleep on the couch. He was awakened by four intruders. Two white men, one black man, and a woman with long blonde hair wearing a floppy wig. What? And she was holding a candle and chanting... Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. Okay. All right. McDonald fought with the men, but was knocked out when he was hit on the head with a club. When he regained consciousness, he found that he had been stabbed and he was having trouble breathing. He remembers thinking, quote, wow, that guy sure can pack a punch. (laughs) By the way, the same time that he was thinking this, he hears his wife screaming and calls his uh, and calling his name and his daughter yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Mm-mm-mm. Now, just a little tidbit. When describing this in an interview with Larry King, <laughs> he never in the entire interview mentions his wife's name or his children's names. Interesting. The army did not believe his story. <laughs> and charged him with the murders in May 1970. Okay, and this begins one of the most legated, I don't know, court things in the history of the United States. I mean, it's just, you'll see where I'm going with that. Okay. According to the CID, evidence showed that McDonald and his wife may have gotten into a fight okay. because Kimberly, the five-year-old, had crawled into bed with her mommy while her dad was in the living room and had wet the bed. Mm. And it looked like McDonald might have gotten angry about that. The fight got out of control with him and his wife. And he had hit her with his fists and then a piece of wood. Oh my God, that makes me mad. Thinking that she was dead, the CID believes that Kimberly might have walked into the couple's bedroom as this was fight was happening and McDonald proceeded to hit her with the piece of wood, carried her back to her room, and then beat her to death and stabbed her with the ice pick and the knife. This just makes me nauseous. At this point, the wife, Colette, probably walked into the child's bedroom and threw herself upon the child to protect her. Of course. Um, but it was probably too late at that point. He dragged Colette back to her bedroom and repeatedly stabbed her. Thinking the two-year-old Kristen <clears throat> might be a witness, oh my he then gosh. proceeded to stab her. Now, this is the CID's explanation okay. of the crime scene. Okay, But, like, a two-year-old? Like, I have an almost two-year-old. I don't really know how he'd be much of a witness. <laughs> I can't. I laugh only because 
Nolan, I don't know. Oh, perhaps Kristen could speak a little bit more than <laughs> Nolan can, but anyway. Dog. <laughs> now, enter Helena uh, Stokely. She is a well-known drug addict, a well-known to the police, and a police informant. McDonald identified her as the woman in the group that was holding the candle, chanting, Acid is gravy, kill the pigs. <laughs> Witnesses, I know. Witnesses even place her in the area, wearing mm. the same clothes as McDonald described. Okay. Problem was, she kept changing her stories. She Which was at the house. Good. She wasn't at the house. She was at the house. She wasn't at the house. Basically, every time the CID questioned her, she changed her story. Well, if she's saying acid is groovy, I can't imagine her being exactly sober. <laughs> yeah. And she was a drug addict. Right, so, right, you know. right, right. <clears throat> Six weeks and 70, that's seven zero witnesses later, McDonald was cleared under Article 32 hearing, and that's through the military. The judge stated that the evidence was not enough to charge him and that the civilian police should, quote, look into Helena. <sighs> Okay. So, in, in December 1970, <clears throat> McDonald was given an honorable discharge from the Army. He packed up. He moved to Long Beach, California, where he worked at a hospital as the director of emergency medicine. Oh, my gosh. And life goes on, right? Did it he goes, ever act, like, sad or anything? Like, it goes well for him. Emotion? He settles in. He starts dating. <laughs> okay. The whole while... Not, doesn't really talk about his wife and children, but he rants and raves about the shoddy job the CID did. And on December 15th, 1970, he was actually on the Dick Cavett show. And I know you don't know who that is, no but it's idea. a late night <laughs> host, you know, like Jay Leno. Okay. And, okay. 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 So, um, and I watched a little tidbit of that. I mean, I watched the part that he was on. He was smiling. He was joking. Uh, what date did I say? Oh, December 15th, 1970. This is the same year. What? That this happened. What? And he's... Okay, because this okay. happened in February. Mm. So, he was smiling. He was joking with the host. <clears throat> no. um, he was upset that there even was a hearing because there wasn't enough evidence against him. So, again, he was going against the CID. Mm -mm. He didn't speak about his wife or his daughters at all. Oh, just how unfairly he had been treated. Mm. So, I mean, just watching this guy with this smirk on his face, you know. Want to punch him? He, yeah, exactly. Colette's family had actually stood behind him. What? They, they never suspected him. They've known him since he was 14 years old. Oh, Colette okay. and him were high school sweethearts. So they've known him for a long time. Then they watched the talk show host. Mm -hmm. I mean, the talk show. They started becoming a little suspicious because they were still grieving their loss. Sure. And McDonald didn't really appear to be really hurting. I mean, we all hurt in different ways, but that was just interesting. They became suspicious of him at that time. And Colette's stepfather, uh, Freddie Kassab, who really... Really, uh, her father had passed away, and he stepped in and was really like her father. I mean, I, I hate saying stepfather because he really was like her father. Began to dig deep, deeper and deeper into things. 
the family had not been allowed into the military hearing, uh, so they didn't know the evidence that the CID had introduced, and that's why they okay. were still backing up McDonald at the time. It's kind of similar to, like, Scott Peterson and yeah, how he went on. Yeah, okay. After prodding, he finally got the transcripts of the hearing, and reading through them, he was like, uh, red flags. Yeah, sure. Everywhere. <clears throat> he was finally allowed to visit the house, and then he, uh, McDonald's story just didn't freaking add up. I mean, nothing. So, here's some of the stuff. When McDonald called the murders in, he said, some people have been stabbed. <laughs> yeah, he didn't say, my family has been stabbed. No. Some, some people. people. Just some people. Mm-hmm. Not my pregnant wife, not my babies. Nope, some people. It had been raining all day. There was no footy, uh, footy, footy, <laughs> or muddy. Was he wearing footy pajamas when he did this? <laughs> there was no muddy footprints. Wow, this beer is great. <laughs> it has, it has a high alcohol content. I will say medicinal. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm thinking that if there were four drug crazed hippies, quote hippies, running around sure, the house, there'd they'd be have a footprints. Bit of mud. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when you said it was. Raining. And the the remember the door was wide open, still. Was there mud in the house or anything like no. that? No. But just did they take the shoes off? Like so, it just doesn't make any sense. The hall closet, because he was a physician, the hall closet had um, some drugs, and needles. They were Wait, untu- so are you saying all physicians have drugs and needles in their yeah. house? <laughs> Katie, I'm... Katie, testing, my sister, do you hear this? Do you? I guess they were like, um, I don't know. Uh, the drugs that he had were mostly diet, these diet pills that he supposedly was on too. Okay, again, so. Katie, Katie, can I get some of those diet pills? <laughs> again, they were not touched. Okay, so, so if the druggie, okay, I get yeah. where you're going with that, okay. Hair was found in both of Colette's hands, as well as in Kimberly's room, and we'll get to that later. Hair? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, yeah. Blood and fiber from McDonald were found in on all victims, but none in the living room where he supposedly was attacked. Hmm. As for the living room, the only things that suggested an attack was an overturned coffee table Staged. and an, an up-potted plant Staged. that lay on its side, but the pot that it had been planted in was upright. So the plant He's was... like, oh, I made a mess. Oh, better clean it up. <laughs> I don't want to get this on my footy pajamas. <laughs> my footy pajamas. <laughs> it made no sense. No, McDonald had suffered 18 superficial stab wounds and one wound that punctured his lungs. But there was no blood in the living room. What do you mean by superstitial stab? Superstitial stab wounds. So they were. Sorry. They were just a little. Like they were. He just poked himself with the knife, basically. Basically. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you get a paper cut or something, it's superficial. I mean, it's not. Yeah. Right. Nothing that he sustained was life threatening. Oh, but Let everybody me. else is dead, so that just doesn't even, make any sense. Even the wound in his lung was not life-threatening. But he's a physician, so he would know. So, Okay. Okay, here's something, and there was no blood in the living room, I think I said that, but anyway, here's something. There were also no fingerprints of his anywhere in the house. So not only did he clean up the plant, he also probably cleaned up everything else. There were no fingerprints. But he lived of his there, right? Nowhere in the house. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
So not on the light switches, not on the tables, not on the telephone, not on the toilet. So he nothing. like went and cleaned up. Nothing. But it wouldn't make any sense to do that because he lived there. It's just weird. <clears throat> okay, Very now weird. here. In the living room was an Esquire magazine on the floor. So this is what he had been reading. Okay. Okay. The front cover, Manson. Hmm. The McDonald killings <sighs> were just six months after the Sharon Tate murders. And do you remember what was on the big thing about the Sharon Tate? Does the word pig yeah, written in pig blood and ring any bells? Hippie thing with the acid and ring yeah. any bells? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, a few more things. McDonald said that the guys had pulled his pajama tops over his head and he had gotten wrapped around his hands somehow. And he had used that to ward off the knife blows. Then he later covered Colette with it when he found her. The holes in the pajama top don't match up with his story. They would look different if he was protecting himself with his the top wrapped around his hand. But... They kind of do match up to Colette's stab wounds. Mm. Kind of. Not totally. So. The club that was used was a slab from Kimberly's bed. Oh, jeez. And there were wood splinters from it everywhere. But, <laughs> guess? The living room? The living room. The living room. Mm. McDonald said he tried to resuscitate Colette by giving her mouth to mouth. Now, this is a question I have for your sister. Is that possible when you have a collapsed lung? To do mouth-to-mouth CPR? Yeah. If you have a collapsed lung. I don't know. Just a question. Yeah. The ice pick and the knife were found about 20 feet from the back door, lying right next to each other. Now, if you had four fleeing crazy people, would they, first of all, toss the murder weapon question mark and if they did would they toss them so that they landed right next to each other i still can't get even over if it's raining outside that these crazy drug people come into the house and don't leave mud everywhere well, they took their shoes off <laughs> and dog. then they got in the footy pajamas i guess <laughs> i mean it just doesn't make like, that makes sense that because they were thoughtful enough to take their shoes off so that they <laughs> laid the knife and the ice pick right next to each other. Oh, and they picked up the potted plant. I mean, sorry, your plant's on the ground, but your pot's okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so a dull bent paring knife was found inside the house next to Colette's body, and this seemed to be the knife that was used on McDonald. Okay. So, as you pointed out, Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen sustained horrific wounds which killed them. McDonald's wounds were never life-threatening, not even the one that collapsed his lungs. He was a green beret, and he didn't even get one of the, quote, hippies. I, yeah, like, and the, I mean, sorry, I'm stuttering a lot, one, because of the beer, but two, because I can't wrap my mind around. you can't. This child was stabbed, like you said, 33 or so times with just the knife, and then there was the ice pick, too, and then he just... Everybody was stabbed so many times, and then he just wasn't. That yeah. just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't make, make sense. sense. It doesn't make any sense. But the problem is there were also a lot of inconsistencies with the CID. Mm. Yeah. 
they really made a mess of things. Like of the crime scene? Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yep. For example, many people walk through the murder scene and the yard, including neighbors. Yeah. I mean, in today's world, we're just like, what the hell? But yeah. This is in the 70s. I should have known. 1970. So, remember, mm, I mean, this this stuff really got. This is when it started to really kick up. Yeah. With Manson and everything. Yeah. So, there were neighbors kind of going through the house Mm -hmm. while the MPs were there. Crazy. At one time, it was reported that no less than 18 MPs were in the house at one time. Oh, my gosh. So, later. So, this is, I'm sorry. So, this is MPs. So they're on a post somewhere. You said Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg, yeah. I think that's and that's why my, the CIA. I think that's where my husband. Wait, Fort Bragg. <laughs> oh no, he wasn't born in North Carolina. Okay, I'm gonna stop talking. Um. <laughs> um. <clears throat> anyway, uh, do you think MPs have to deal with a lot of murder scenes like this? I don't think so. I dealt with a lot of empty cheese. <laughs> One beer. Empties <laughs> and cheese. I have dealt with a lot of MPs as a kid growing up on forts with just going after us for skateboarding or being out past curfew. I can't imagine them dealing a lot with murder scenes. Right. But remember, they called the CID in there, too. Oh, okay. Which is a criminal investigation. And they were there right away, too. But that was, again, military. Yeah. And I just don't think that they were, I don't know. Later, a tour of the house was given to some high-ranking Fort Bragg officers. Hmm. I mean, this was almost like a, a show. A show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, one of the crime lab guys said that he was dusting the aforementioned pot that the plant was in. He was dusting it. And all these high-ranking officers were leaning over him, watching him do it. And he got so uncomfortable that he just kind of left to go do something else. And he never went back to getting oh, the fingerprints on the pots. But it was like like some stupid show. That's ridiculous. So um, I guess McDonald's wallet um, was at a side table by the back door. It was stolen because of all these people coming in and out. Well, it later turned out that the... Um, ambulance driver admitted taking the wallet oh my god removing the six dollars in cash and tossing the wallet out the window so that's another thing too is they didn't steal anything no no nothing was stolen nothing but, was stolen but an ambulance driver t- <laughs> took six took bucks okay yeah Ooh, you got you got money out of that one so the crime scene was not roped off obviously not at all here get this one the next morning was garbage day Oh, gosh. And, yes, the garbage men were allowed to get in and get the McDonald's garbage. No. Before it was even gone through. No. Yes. Are you serious? Yes. (sighs) These were just some of the mammoth mistakes made by the CID. I mean, I I just reported some of them. A big woolly mammoth. (laughs) Talking about a training tool of what not to do. I believe that this is Gosh, even used it. when training FBI agents and stuff of what not to do. It this was makes just makes me mad for that poor it was, woman and her babies. Yeah. It was ridiculous. So Kasab, her stepfather, 
uh, pushed for a civilian trial, and in August 1974, and this is now four years later, a grand jury convened to hear the case in Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh. McDonald. Raleigh, sorry. McDonald <laughs> waived his rights and appeared as the first witness. Um, in 75, he was formally accused of first-degree murder in the death of Kristen, and that's his youngest daughter, and two counts of second-degree murder for the deaths of his wife, Colette, and daughter, Kimberly. As McDonald was awaiting trial, he was released on a $100,000 bail. So then um, July 16th, 1979, that's five years later, yeah. a trial begins. The prosecution brought in FBI lab tech who stated that in, according to evidence, the events of the night as McDonald presented could not have happened. Oh, big surprise. <laughs> Helena uh, Stockley also testified and stated she had never been in the house. She officially on the stand said that. Yes. After going back and forth. So yes, but remember that. Keep that in mind. But why did Because she... there's something else that goes back to that. Okay. The defense made the trial all about McDonald. Sure. Obviously. Sure. His loss. His victimization. His changes that he of had course. to make in his life. Well, of course. It seemed to be presented that McDonald's suffered, sufferings were so much worse than what actually happened to the family. During the trial, McDonald sat stone-faced with no emotions, mm. even when the autopsy photos of his children were shown. There was no. absolutely no, no emotions. No, 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 Then when he got on the witness stand, he puts his head down and starts to cry. He denies everything and adamantly defends his statement that there were intruders in the house. On August 29th, 1979, so... This is nine years after, okay, nine years after the whole thing happened. Yeah. McDonald was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder and one count of first-degree murder. Okay. Okay, so now he's in jail. Good. In, um... For how long? Yeah. In June of 1979, McDonald meets with a well-known writer named Joe McGinnis. Oh, boy. McDonald wanted him to go through the trial with him and write a book. So your family dies, and let's... Okay. All right. McGinnis agrees in the spring of 1983, Fatal Vision. And I actually have read that book. I read it when I was a lot younger than what I am now. <laughs> um, I read that book because this whole thing fascinated me. Is released. And McDonald thought the book would show his innocence. That's why he hired this dude. Okay. Or right. asked this dude to write this. He thought it would show his innocence. But instead it portrayed him as a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> and later, he actually sues the author. Oh, my god! And he gets money. He hired him, him, and then he sued him. Yeah. So, oh I don't boy. know if he, if he actually hired him, but he asked him to write this book. Mm -hmm. So, in July 18th, 1979, the Long Beach Police Association hosts a $100 a plate dinner to raise money for McDonald for his legal fees. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. No. <sighs> So, McDonald then files four appeals saying his Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial had been violated. No. At his fourth appeal, it was voted two to one that this indeed was the case. And in August 1980, he was released on bail. 
Okay, so what is the public doing right now? Like, what? You said you were watching this happen. Well, remember. Is this, everybody split? Do this people is really like think from he's innocent? one side of the country to the other side. Now he's in California. So they really think he's innocent? The murders happened in Fort Bragg. So it's it. So he was released, and he returned to his job as a head of emergency med at oh the Long gosh. Beach Hospital. So then the Supreme Court gets involved, oh, and in a vote of six to three, reversed the speedy trial win, uh, win, and McDonald is arrested by the FBI, and the original sentences are reinstated. So he's back in jail now. Mm. So remember what you I said write about book? <laughs> the longest legated. Yeah. Seriously. thing going on yeah okay now here's just some interesting evidence dna results on the hair in colette's hands remember i told you she had hairs yep. in her hands. okay okay so mcdonald had always claimed the hair in her hand would be for the murderer okay. i just screamed that okay keep that in mind because in her right hand were her own the hair in her right hand was her own what, what, why does she have her own hair in her hand? I don't know, but the hair in her left hand... Please tell me it was his. ...is McDonald's. Okay. There was blonde synthetic hair. Remember he said that she the woman a wig. had yeah, yeah, a blonde yeah. wig. And green and black wool fibers that did not match anything in the house. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And... Was there like a wig in the trash or something? There oh, were... wait, they took the trash. Yep. There were God, also three unidentified hairs found, but I'm thinking there were so, so many, many people, people there. that went through the house. Yeah. When do we know when those hairs were deposited? You don't. You don't at all. One of the first MPs at the scene told the defense that he had seen a woman standing at the corner by the house wearing long hair or having wearing long hair. Long hair. <laughs> she could have been wearing and if it was pajamas. <laughs> wearing a floppy hat. Okay. So an MP actually had seen this woman. Interesting. In 2005, retired U.S. Marshal Jimmy Britt contacted the defense and said that Stockley told him, as she was being transported as a witness, that she was in the house at the night of the murders. He further said that he was present when Stockley told the same thing to the prosecutor. The prosecutor told her that if she said this in court, she would be prosecuted for the crimes. Shoot. Yeah. Shoot. Helena died in January of 1983, so could not attest to anything. So we have no idea. Yeah. In November 2008, it came out that Stockley had been transported because she happened to be in jail at the time so she was transported by other agents not brit what yeah and the prosecutor said that there was no way in heck that he would have allowed a u.s marshal in the room as he was questioning stockley what so did this guy just make all this up that is so frustrating and why i mean i don't know in 2002 mcdonald remarries good for him and he has moved he is moved from california to a federal prison in cumberland maryland where he is now because it's closer to his bride he got married while he oh yeah because he's in jail he's in jail 2000 even sorry who oh come on all these guys have women i know ted buddy and everybody yeah they all have women it's disgusting in 2005 mcdonald applied for parole Denied. 
the next oh, parole God. hearing will be May 2020. Oh my gosh, next that's year. So soon. He <clears throat> maintains his innocence to this day. Now, I'm going to end this story with a quote that that the father, the stepfather said, mm-hmm. Freddie Cassad said, and it just it's just creepy. It's from uh the Jeffrey McDonald case.com and this is just snippets taken from it. It's not the whole thing, but snippets. And it goes like this. When I read the case the first few times, I was skeptical about the existence of the four intruders. But on rereading the portions of the transcript again last night, I have now come over to the belief that, as MacDonald has kept insisting, there were indeed four intruders. Four intruders, three white, one black, just like MacDonald told us. Who were they? I can name three of them. Colette, Kimberly, and Christy. Oh, jeez. The fourth intruder, black, not in skin, but figuratively black, as yet unseen, dark, invisible. The half-grown baby that Colette was carrying. Oh, no. MacDonald as yet's unborn son, as it turned out to be the fourth intruder. Yes, there were four intruders in his life and out of his pathological narcissism, he killed them. I do not know of a narcissism more pathological than this. That is so heartbreaking. I know, and I'm sorry to end on such a bad note, but it just kind of really just, uh, those words really blew me away. So, but to this day, there are two sides to this story. Oh. And it's just, uh, the evidence is just so smeared, literally, Ugh. on both sides. That is That's just so frustrating. like, what the heck really happened that horrible, horrible night? That's so, so sad. That's what I got for you, girlfriend. <sighs> All right. Well, that is so sad, though. Crazy case, isn't it? I'm, I'm honestly, I've never heard that one. I'm actually really surprised. All right, Mom, are you ready for a ghost story? I am. (laughs) I'm going to tell you about Gold Hill, North Carolina. Okay. Okay. Gold Hill was a booming mining town in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. After finding gold in 1824, the mines opened up. The mines had about 5,000 workers. It had 26 saloons, two churches, a jail, 29 taverns, and at least 10 brothels. There's a lot of drinking going on. Oh, yeah. It had two of the deepest mines at the time, Barnhart, which was 435 feet deep, and the Randolph Mine, which is 850 feet deep. Holy smokes. Actually, an interesting fact I learned while I was researching this is that back in 1840, all of the United States gold coins were actually found in North Carolina. Oh, a third of those coins were from Gold Hill. So this is before the California boom of right. the gold rush. So you were saying it was 800 and something feet? 850 feet. Okay, think Plus. about that. Think about that. A football field is 100 feet, right? Um, I don't know. <laughs> is it 100 feet? I think it's 100 yards, not 100 feet. Coming from my mother. Okay, let me tell a little story about my mother. We go and watch my brother play football 
and she's so where you're going with this she is sitting here cheering defense defense of all the other parents from the other team (laughs) so let's not compare a football field to this mine it's 850 feet that's really deep (laughs) i do theater darling (laughs) anyway okay so this place is booming it's big it's busy it's it's the mayor, actually, of Charlotte in 1843 is quoted as saying that he, I sure wish that one day Charlotte would be as prosperous as Gold Hill. Wow. Yeah. Holy smokes. I know. And where's Gold Hill now? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so, even though uh, the mining aspect of this town is booming, my gosh, I keep saying booming, booming, footy pajamas, <laughs> we got this. It was a rough town. Um, employee housing was minimal, lots of disease, and the job of a miner was really, really hard. Workers made $25 a month, and I equivalated that to, like, what they would be making now. It's about $700 a month nowadays. Mm. That's a lot of manual, like, labor and going down 850 feet. Sure. Okay. There's no place to spend it but alcohol and prostitutes, though. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gold Hill really prospered until the California Gold Rush in 1849, and then it got hit by the Civil War. So, basically, by um, 1861, the mines were closed, and the town basically became a ghost town. Over time, places in the town um, actually started caving in over the mines. And around 2000, I read this in a couple different places, there was a group of children and families that were picnicking there, and the ground collapsed under all of them. Oh. Because of all these mines under them, it trapped them all underground. Thankfully, everything, everybody was okay. Oh, everything okay. was fine. Okay. It took a lot of dirt, though, to fill in all those holes. So. That's like eight football fields. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so, besides the craters forming everywhere, uh, the town, the town, what is going on with this beer? The town has been remodeled. Um, it's said to feel like stepping back in time. There's antique stores, little shops, eateries, and from what I've read, they're actually really only open on the weekends. But, of course, with all this history of the location, they offer ghost tours. Of course. With everything that's happened there. So, let's talk about the ghosts of Gold Hill, North Carolina. There is a story. There are two brothers that are said to haunt Gold Hill, Walter and Joseph Newman. I'm not exactly sure how Walter died, but I do know that he was known as a bit of a con artist of the time, and he was actually one of the managers of the mines. Mm. So he still likes to be in control of one of the buildings in particular there in town. When workers that work there in the building go in, he likes to take charge of the lights and either turn them on or off, or he actually won't even let people turn on the lights. Like, you'll switch them on and they won't come on. Oh, There's actually one story of a woman that worked there. She said that she went in um, to turn the lights on and that she turned the AC on and they wouldn't turn on. So she got really frustrated. So she yelled out, come on, George, I've got people coming. You have to help me out here. And the AC and the lights and everything turned all on at the same time. Oh, he's a nice ghost. Yeah, he's just a con artist. It's also said that he likes to make the last step on the staircase vanish. It's like people would be walking down the stairs. And the last step just disappears. Heck, that happens so- to me all the time. Where's <laughs> that excuse for uh, my mother who went on her honeymoon in a boot because of the last step disappearing? 
oh George, you must come and visit We're just going to use that one from now on. Darn you. George. Darn you. Um, oh, it was Walter, Mom. Okay. Well, shit. Who's George? <laughs> Who's George? <laughs> the brothers were Walter and Joseph. <laughs> Who's George? I didn't do these notes very well. Um. <laughs> Who the heck is George? I don't know. But the brothers were Walter and Joseph, so... <laughs> um, it was Walter, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, anyway... <laughs> I wrote my notes really well. <clears throat> oh, darn George. you, George. <laughs> George. Georgia did it again. Uh, but anyway, it was Walter. <clears throat> so, Walter's brother was Joseph. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Now, I unfortunately do know how Joseph died, uh, and that's by suicide. He apparently killed himself by lighting dynamite on his chest. Oh, gosh. And his ghost is seen out in the woods where his cabin used to be or where he uh, committed the suicide. Uh, And one day, some kids were playing out in the woods, and it started to get really windy. The kids were terrified because they saw in the wind different body parts flying around. No, no, no. So this is said to be Joseph. I'm sorry. I just have this visual. Oh, my God. And there's a leg. (laughs) Gosh darn, there was a finger. I'm sure it was a finger. No, that was a toe. But these kids were so scared. So people catch, like, orbs and photos. And anyway, so people claim to see lots of shadow figures and windows in many of the old buildings in town. So one night, a local radio host decided to do a paranormal tour there, and while in the Russell Rufty shelter, he stated that he saw a shadow in the corner. An investigator he was investigating with um, said that she saw it too, and then everyone in the room heard, I'm here. Oh. And they actually caught it on audio. Another place that is known to see spirits is the pond, where one of the mine's manager's daughters, Elizabeth, is seen searching for her lost love. Wow, it's all that unrequited or whatever it is, love. Sure. So the story goes that there's a man named Aaron Klein, and he was from Pennsylvania. He came to Gold Hill to work the mines. He met and fell in love with Elizabeth, and they planned to get married. So obviously there probably weren't a lot of very eligible women in the town. What are you saying, Elizabeth She didn't work in a brothel. Second hand? (laughs) No. She didn't work in a brothel. A lot of men were jealous. Uh, One in particular was Stan Kukla? Kukla? C-U-K-L-A. Stan, Stan, Stan. They called him Big Stan. So we'll just go by that. Big Stan. He was really not too happy about this relationship and really like harassed Aaron about it a lot. One day, uh, when the workers arrived to Randolph Mine, they found Aaron's puppy outside the mine dead. Oh, no. And on the same... I know. That's just... That gets me. Forget the body parts. Not a dog. (laughs) It doesn't body body parts. But that day, they also couldn't find Aaron. He was totally missing, and they never found him. 
gosh. And never it. found them at all. And everybody Big Stan really thought it was Big Stan. And he started acting like really suspicious, um, especially after miners actually started seeing random bright lights in Randolph's mine. Um, and they started hearing puppy whimpers. No. And, like, stuff like that. And he started acting, like, super suspicious and scared. And then one morning, workers came to work the mine and discovered Big Stan dead at the bottom of the mine shaft. Oh, that is creepy. People think it was actually the ghost of Aaron who killed Big Stan. Like, pushed him down the shaft? Yeah, so several different stories were, like, he was just at the bottom of the shaft dead. But other stories I read said he was actually, like, in the actual elevator... So at the end of every night, at the bottom is where they found him in the elevator, dead. Okay. But at the end of every night, everybody comes up, so the elevator should have been up, waiting right. for the new day to start, right. but the elevator was down, and he was dead in it at the bottom. Okay, so either way, it's... Either way, but he was dead. Not as it should be. So years later, people still hear puppy whimpers near the sh- the mine as well as in the woods where Aaron had lived by the pond. So one story was told that two fishermen were out at the pond fishing when one was approached by a man with a puppy. The fisherman spoke to him. The man didn't respond. And when the fisherman's friend was like, who are you talking to? He turns and looks and nobody's there. Oh, but I bet it's a nice ghost because he He's has a puppy. He's got a puppy. puppy. Yeah. yeah. Little puppies. He's a nice spirit. Yeah. So Elizabeth is said to be seen at the pond as well. She's seen, been seen there on several occasions. Oh my gosh, are they ever together? I, I she's still searching for him. So I don't. And think he's so. searching for her with I his know, puppy. With his puppy. So one native Dang. gold, Hillian, Hill, liver. Anyway, says that he was. Liver. <laughs> What the heck is a hill liver? Well, somebody who lives in Gold Hill, oh, a native of oh, Gold I Hill. Liver. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> says that he was patrolling the area one night and saw a woman clear as day. And he rolled out the window to tell her she needed to leave. And she just walked by his truck. And when he looked in the rear view mirror, she was she gone. Was gone. The last place in town that is said to be the most haunted is the Powder House. It's a small brick structure built in the side of the hill, kind of like a tunnel. Um, they stored their explosives and their dynamite there. Uh, Gunpowder. Yeah. Okay. So on one day, two men went to grab some dynamite for the mine, and one of the men used a pickaxe to open the wood crate, and he hit it just right that it exploded. Oh, no. And it sent the pickaxe into his chest. Uh. So this location gets, like, a ton of orbs and photos weird images of like it literally looks there's a couple pictures I saw of like a man sitting in like mining attire with like the hat on his head and everything with a lantern there's like high readings on the K2 devices which is the device that it's a meter that detects electromagnetic fields and has like little lights that light up there's lanterns seen in the area a lot, like in the woods. Right, the light. Right. Yeah, from just, you know, people that used to work there or whatever. There's at one time the sensitive or like a medium. She walked into the powder house not knowing what happened there. And she said that her chest really hurt. And she felt like someone had suffered and died from a flash fire, were her words. In this place, they really do a lot of the flashlight game. 
which is like my favorite thing I've ever oh, done on Paranormal. Oh, right, right. So you have one of those like twisty top flashlights and you loosen it up just enough that if you were to tap it, it would light up and you set it somewhere away from everybody. It They'll like ask questions and it lights up like all the time there with the flashlight game. Oh my gosh. So that is what I have with uh, Gold Hill, North Carolina, the booming town with uh, disembodied body parts. Oh my gosh. I so want to go there because I... And blame George for the missing steps. Who the hell is George? But I'm blaming him for the missing steps. I don't know why I wrote that down. (laughs) George, I think, has something to do with this story. (laughs) Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this... um, very fun episode three it has been very fun and next week we are going to new orleans darling yes we are i will be telling a true crime story and mama will be telling a paranormal paranormal story thank you so much for joining us um you can email us at killer hangover podcast at gmail.com find us on facebook and instagram we'd love to hear from you all right mama let's clink our empty beer cans together this was fun cheers mama cheers love you kid